Welcome to another episode of Science Horror. This week I have for you a story concerning a scientist who fell under the spell of the notorious chemist and alchemist Al-Hafiz. The Genovese police have as yet taken no action regarding Al-Hafiz, and it is said that they are afraid of him. My life seemed to fall apart not gradually, but all at once. I had worked all my life for a major chemical company, eventually making senior research chemist, the highest rank available without getting into management. I had never married, I could never make relationships work. My work was my life. When they fired me, it came like a bolt out of the blue. Of course I should have seen it coming, but I didn't. They said I had fallen under the spell of pseudo-scientific theories, in particular, the theories of Al-Hafiz, whom they said was mad. It's not even easy to fire people in the Netherlands, but somehow they managed it through sheer determination to get rid of me. They said I had misused company equipment for my own research. They had a point, to be fair. It was clear that I could not afford to carry on living in Amsterdam. Without the job, I couldn't afford the rent. Most of my money had gone into private research, when it probably should have gone into a house. I should have looked for another job, but the fact is that I was bored to tears with working as a chemist. It was the sort of boredom that was so strong, it controlled me. The thought of sitting in job interviews and pretending to be enthusiastic about working for another large corporation made me feel like weeping. I simply couldn't do it. Perhaps they had a point about my obsession with Al-Hafiz's theories. They were the only thing left in chemistry that truly interested me. But you can't get a job pursuing the fringe theories of an obscure renegade researcher. For some weeks I took to drinking heavily and morosely reading the old texts of the alchemists, especially the works of the Indian sage Rasanava, the Italian Trevisan, and the English alchemist George Ripley. Then I happened to hear from an old friend who I hadn't seen since my college days. Laura Griffiths contacted me, saying she was living in the northern Italian town of Bolzano, and inviting me to stay with her if I ever happened to be in Italy. Her husband had left her, she hated her job, and she, like me, was at a turning point in her life. I decided to drive down to Bolzano right away. My former colleagues wanted nothing to do with me, and I had few friends in Amsterdam who weren't connected to my work. I was lonely, and it seemed to me that a complete change of atmosphere and the company of an old friend was exactly what the doctor ordered. Rather than go straight to Laura's apartment, I decided to first visit Genoa. Genoa is on the west coast of Italy much further south than Bolsano, and not really on my way, but I had visited it once, and I had become intrigued with the narrow streets of the old town, sometimes winding steeply uphill. The entire city is practically on the side of a cliff by the sea, and that appealed to me. I had an idea that I might rent a cheap apartment there and devote myself to writing. I thought perhaps I could write books on alchemy, using my knowledge as a chemist, and make a modest living that way. I divided the journey into three legs, stopping in Frankfurt and Basel, 
before crossing the Alps in Switzerland and making my way down to Genoa. Parts of the journey were quite spectacular, especially across the Alps, but I found I was suffering from a certain ennui and I couldn't really enjoy it. I'm inclined to agree with Chris McCandless who is said to have written in his journal before dying of starvation, happiness only real when shared. I spent two days in Genoa looking at apartment listings and trying to get a sense of the different areas of the town, then I drove up through Piacenza and past Lake Garda. My knowledge of Italian isn't great, but the news on the radio seemed to be about the conflict between Russia, China and America. It said they had failed to reach any agreement and tensions were escalating sharply. Same old nonsense, I muttered to myself as I drove past the lake. Finally, I arrived in Bolzano. Laura greeted me with a bright smile and the second I saw her, I felt a huge weight lift off my shoulders. Her smile hit me like sunshine in the middle of a storm. Bolzano is a town in a high valley on the edge of the Alps, bordering Austria. Italians and Austrians have coexisted there uneasily for a long time. The architecture is Germanic, large buildings often constructed from wood, with an impressive Austrian charm, but most of the people are now Italian. The two languages, German and Italian, mix uneasily everywhere, while in the hills nearby one can hear Ladin being spoken, and sometimes all three languages appear on traffic signs. Laura was living in a bright apartment not far from the centre of town, and working for a company that exported food and drink typical of the region, performing laboratory tests to ensure safety and quality. I thought we could spend some time in the hills, she said. You like walking, don't you? There are some great places to walk around here. Sounds wonderful, I said. She showed me around the town a bit. There were many typically Germanic restaurants serving various kinds of stews and sausages and apple strudel. In the town square, a man wearing lederhosen played accordion to the tourists, and the mountains were always visible at the ends of the streets. The next day we headed into the mountains, from the centre of Bolzano there's a cable car that seems to go on for miles and takes you to the top of a nearby mountain. The cars are big enclosed things that can carry a dozen or more people at a time. As we ascended I had a strange sense of foreboding but the views were beautiful, it was almost as if we were flying over the hillside. At the top we hiked for maybe 6 kilometres. Our destination was a cave that was off-limits to the public, but used by mountain guides. Laura happened to have a key via her contacts in the tourist industry there. The plan was to rest and eat lunch, then make our way back via a different route, finally catching a bus back into town. We spent the whole hike alternating between admiring the view, talking about differences in European cultures, and laughing about random nonsense. For the first time in perhaps a decade, my problems seemed small and insignificant, and the world seemed full of opportunity. I suppose my problems were, quite objectively, small and insignificant, 
but they had been rattling around my head for far too long. It's amazing how even just one person you really get on with can make the world seem like a completely different place, a brighter and happier place. The cave turned out to be nothing like I was expecting. The entire front of it was sealed with a metal plate, but there was a door in it just big enough to get through. Inside was a kind of storeroom, complete with four beds and quite extensive stocks of food and water. Sometimes people stay here for even a week at a time when they're searching for missing tourists, said Laura. Usually it's just used by tour guides. If you get caught in bad weather, you can always spend the night here. The rule is you pay for what you use and leave a donation. How far back does it go? I said, peering into the gloom. Several hundred metres, said Laura. Take a flashlight, I'll show you. She led me deeper into the cave and I could see that it curved round in a big arc, becoming rockier and generally more cave-like towards the back. Several side passages were sealed with metal plates. Right at the end there was a steady drip of water from the roof and a number of small stalactites. We were admiring the rock formations when there was a bright flash, as if someone had set off a stroboscope inside the cave, followed by an enormous deafening bang, then a roaring sound. The ground seemed to vibrate and shift, as if an earthquake had begun. I said, what the hell? Did something explode, said Laura. We rushed back to the front of the cave. The roaring sound there was louder, and the entire cave was still vibrating. Nothing seemed to have exploded inside the cave, but there was a bright glow around the edge of the metal door. What's going on out there? I said. Something must be on fire, said Laura. For the next ten minutes we watched the door nervously. Gradually the rumbling and the light died down. Let's take a look, I said finally. Be careful, said Laura. I slowly opened the metal door. I couldn't immediately see anything out of the usual, except the sky was very dark and there was a strong wind. Seems okay, I said. Must be a freak storm. I stepped through the door and beheld a sight so monstrous so nightmarish that I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Laura quietly joined me and then she saw it too. She began sobbing. Oh God, she said, her voice cracking. From the side of the hill we could see three separate fiery mushroom clouds. They seemed vast. We could not but think that they must each have consumed an entire city. As we stood there, the wind seemed to rapidly increase to hurricane levels. Back inside, I shouted. Get back inside. As soon as we got back into the cave, I shut the metal door and started looking for some way of stopping up the cracks around the edge of it. There really wasn't anything that I could use, so I took a sheet off one of the beds, doubled it up, opened the door and then shut it again with the sheet trapped between the door and the frame around it. That stopped up the gaps fairly well. I looked at Laura. 
She was pale and shaking. Are those, she said, unable to get the words out. I think so, I said. Nuclear explosions. Where, she said, Bolzano? I don't know, I replied. Would we still be alive? I have no idea. Suddenly, our mobile phones began wailing. They were both displaying some kind of official alert. It said Italy is under attack and we should stay inside and keep windows closed until further notice. That was all it said. Neither of us had any phone signal. I don't know how our phones even managed to receive them. Is there a radio in here? I said. Laura didn't reply. She was just staring at her phone. Let's try to find a radio, I said, and I began looking through the things on the shelves and in the cupboards. Eventually, miraculously, I found one, and it seemed to have fresh batteries in it. But when I switched it on, I could only receive interference. It had an AM button, but that didn't help. Nothing, I said. What are we supposed to do now? said Laura. We have to stay in here for as long as possible, I said. I read that somewhere. The radiation is worse at the start. With every passing day, it'll get better. We mustn't go out. Laura seemed to be in a state of shock. When I look back now, I wonder why I wasn't more shocked myself. I think the reason is this. In the preceding years, I had become so disenchanted with life that I expected only the worst from life and nuclear mushroom clouds didn't strike me as necessarily all that much worse than what had gone before. I wasn't thinking about all the many people who must have died, and all the people who must be suffering enormous, unfathomable pain. I had got so wrapped up in my own problems that I already saw the world as dark and full of suffering, and I couldn't comprehend the change in scale of the darkness and suffering at that moment. Are you okay? I said. She nodded. I think we should go to the back of the cave, I said. We can drag a couple of these beds back there. We began to shift some essential things further back into the cave. Due to the way the passage curved, that put a corner between us and the outside. I had no idea if radiation could get through the metal plate that sealed the cave, and I didn't want to take the chance. We have to find out what's happened, said Laura. We can keep trying the radio, I said. We should try to stay in here for at least three days. What about water, said Laura. We can collect the water dripping at the end of the cave, I suggested. Where does it come from, she said. It might be radioactive. I had no answer. Was the water draining directly from the hillside, or was it coming from some sort of aquifer? I had no idea. There were some kinds of fruit and juice that we could drink, and we had four litres of water with us, but apart from that, the steady drip at the end of the cave was our only source of water. We might be able to get through three days without drinking it. The next three days were a nightmare, although they could easily have been much worse. We pried a metal sheet off one of the side passages and used that as a bathroom, which saved a lot of embarrassment and other unpleasantness. We had enough food and just about enough water, 
and when the primitive battery-powered electric lights in the cave ran out, there were candles and two oil lamps, and a supply of oil. The first day was the worst. We couldn't quite believe what was happening. We grasped at straws. Perhaps the mushroom clouds were only due to chemical explosions. Perhaps if we went outside, we'd find everything was more or less normal. Perhaps the radio would work, if only we were to take it outside. We tried propping the radio with the aerial leaning against the metal plate that sealed the entrance, in the hope that the metal would act as an antenna, but that didn't help. Then, after a whole day had passed, finally we started to receive radio broadcasts in the AM band. They confirmed our worst fears. A global nuclear war was in progress. Large parts of Europe were simply gone. Only after the radio confirmed what our own eyes had seen did we really believe the evidence of our senses. We fell to discussing how long we should stay in the cave for, and we more or less decided to stay in there till the food ran out, which we estimated would take two weeks, if we were to literally eat absolutely everything. The radio constantly told people to stay inside if they possibly could. In theory, staying in the cave for two weeks was the right thing to do. In practice, after a week in there we were desperate to see for ourselves what was happening outside. We decided to unseal the entrance and go and look. We fashioned face masks as best we could out of bed linen, hoping to stop at least larger radioactive particles from settling in our mouths. We made ourselves headscarves in the hope of preventing radioactive dust from settling in our hair. We looked ridiculous, but that no longer mattered. We also tied plastic bags over our boots, so that our boots wouldn't collect radioactive isotopes. Then, we stepped out into a post-nuclear world. On the nearby hills, a lot of the grass had yellowed. Further away, there were massive burnt patches on the landscape, as though conventional fires had raged everywhere, which they probably had. In places, the hills were still burning, and there was an acrid stench of smoke in the air. From our position, we couldn't see any major towns, and we had no idea what had happened to Bolzano, so we started to descend towards the town. As we walked, an endless catalogue of horrors assaulted our eyes. The cable car that we had arrived on had plummeted to the ground. Cars smashed against the hillside, bodies strewn over the grass and rocks. We came across many corpses of ramblers who died right where they were, many with eerie white eyes like cooked fish. They were less decomposed than we might have expected, the saying they'd spent a week on a hillside in summer. The radiation must have preserved them. Some corpses were horribly bloated, while others appeared scalded like cooked lobsters, red faces with white stirring eyes. A fine soft dust covered the hillside, varying between grey and black. We tried to stick to the paths and avoid kicking it up as much as possible. We wanted to run back to the cave, but we were driven on by a terrible curiosity 
Coupled with a desire not to spend any more time in the dark, not really knowing what was happening, tortured by our imaginations. Finally, we were able to look down on the town. It was still there, but many buildings had collapsed and many were still burning. As we got closer, we saw that the streets were strewn with the wreckage of cars and there were bodies everywhere. There's a supermarket on Via Crispy, said Laura. They have food and water. Let's try to get there. Via Crispy, I repeated, and I started to laugh. Laura began to laugh too, then her laughing turned into sobbing, and then back into laughing again. When we reached the town, we found endless dead bodies and not a single living soul apart from a dog who barked at us and then ran off. What killed them? said Laura. I have no idea, I said. Everything's destroyed, she said. I tried to make a joke, but I found my mouth was too dry to get the words out properly, and I dissolved into a fit of coughing, mid-sentence. Look on the bright side, we no longer have to pay tax. We'll never have to fill out. <coughs> Drink some water, said Laura, passing me a bottle with filled from the drip at the back of the cave. The streets were full of cars that had crashed as if their drivers had suddenly fainted. About a quarter of the cars contained corpses, many slumped over the steering wheel. As we approached the supermarket, Laura began to vomit convulsively. Come on, we have to get inside, I said. She staggered on down the street while I tried to hold her up and keep her moving. The automatic door of the supermarket was standing half open. Inside we found seven people in a state of decomposition. The smell was unbearable. It won't be so bad in the back, I said. We found a door that led into storerooms at the back of the supermarket. There was a little office room there too. The rooms were all empty. I helped Laura sit down on the floor in the office. Then I had to go and throw up. When I got back, Laura seemed barely conscious. I decided to go and look in the supermarket to see if I could find anything there that might help us. Medicines or at least juice that we could use to hydrate ourselves. I picked up some UHT orange juice, some bottles of mineral water and a bucket. As is typical of Italian supermarkets, there were no medicines of any kind. When I returned to the office, Laura was lying very still, covered in vomit. I thought she was sleeping, but when I tried to check her pulse, I couldn't find any. I held my ear to her mouth to see if I could hear breathing. As far as I could tell, she wasn't breathing. I started being sick again into the bucket. My throat and stomach hurt like hell, and I felt like someone was stabbing needles into my eyes. The room started spinning around me. At some point, I passed out. When I woke up, I was lying on a low divan. The room seemed completely unfamiliar. The walls were hung with strange oriental tapestries and bizarre sculptures lined numerous shelves and plinths. As my gaze shifted downwards, my eyes settled on a man inhaling something from a Turkish pipe. 
sitting cross-legged on a carpet decorated with elaborate geometrical designs. I realised that I didn't feel sick or ill at all. Well, said a voice. The voice belonged to a man of Arabic or perhaps Turkish appearance, with a short thick black beard and piercing blue eyes. He was wearing a white shirt of unusual design with no collar. I grabbed his arm. Laura, I said, you've got to help Laura. I think she might be dead. The man looked at another man standing next to him and they began laughing. The other man appeared Chinese and was dressed in a blue suit. Don't worry about Laura, my friend, said the first man. Do you know where you are? I sat up. They didn't stop me. I felt fine but confused. Above all, I wanted to know where Laura was. No, where am I? I said. You are in Genoa, said the man. I am Al-Hafiz. This is Dr. Wang. Suddenly the memory flooded back to me. I had gone to Genoa. I had searched for the notorious chemist, Al-Hafiz, and I had found him. I had spent a whole evening talking about chemistry and alchemy with Al-Hafiz and his friends, including Dr. Weng. Al-Hafiz had told me of a drug that the ancients claimed allows people to see the future. It had been discovered after extensive archaeological research in Egypt. I had said I'd be interested in trying it. They had given me the drug the next day, around noon. I had inhaled a carefully measured dose of the drug's curling white vapours from a pipe. What time is it? I said. It's 12.30, said Dr. Weng. In the afternoon, I said. Tuesday? They laughed again. Yes, said Al-Hafiz. You have been, shall we say, away with the fairies for half an hour. Tell us, said Dr. Weng. What did you see? I slumped back against the wall. A nuclear holocaust, I said. A terrible war. Everyone was dead. Is that really our future? One possible future out of many, said Al-Hafiz. Listen, why don't you join us for lunch? We're going for a pizza. By three I was on my way to Bolzano after a pleasant enough lunch, with a job offer from Al-Hafiz. He wanted me to research information in certain ancient texts. They would pay me well for this work, and I would be able to live wherever I liked. I had told him I'd think about it. I had just been to Helen back, and I didn't feel as though informed consent had really come into it. They hadn't told me I would spend what felt like a week thinking I was in the middle of a nuclear war. I had imagined I would just have some vague hallucinations about future events, at best. Any work connected to Al-Hafiz therefore felt like a Faustian pact. On the other hand, they only wanted me to research some old texts. They weren't asking me to be a human guinea pig. I had unwittingly volunteered myself for that, and I wouldn't make the same mistake again. What could possibly go wrong? What was it that I had seen? A dream? A vision? 
No ordinary dream could have been so vivid, so detailed, so real and so long. The roads I was driving along looked exactly as they had in my dream. It was as though I had driven along those roads only a week earlier. I knew the route exactly as well as if I had driven it a week earlier. A thought occurred to me and I switched on the radio. The news was talking about the situation between Russia, America and China. The newsreader said an agreement had been reached. At that moment, the car moved past the side of a mountain in the distance on my left and the rays of the afternoon sun shone into the car. My phone buzzed on the passenger seat, telling me I'd received a text message. I pulled over into a lay-by and read it. It was from Laura, suggesting we meet in the town centre, in the square. There was a man there wearing lederhosen and playing the accordion, she said. She can meet me at the adjacent benches. In an hour, I would be in Bolzano. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this story, please petition the Genovese police to have Al-Hafiz arrested on charges of necromancy and breach of the laws of physics. Also, please consider clicking the like and subscribe buttons. My name's John and you've been listening to Science Horror, which I'm now spelling without a space since I've realised the separate words science and horror are far too generic and make the channel hard to find. From now on, I'm also going to release new episodes every Friday at midnight Central European time, since many people seem to listen to my stories at the weekend, perhaps while performing monstrous rituals or working on loathsome machines of obscure purpose. Thanks again. Sleep well.